Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Heading back into the waters, it's episode 256 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, coming at you a day earlier than usual because I'm trying to get you ready for the spring finale of season two of Siren on Freeform that's happening. We're going to talk to Alex Rowe, who plays Ben on the show, going to talk about Everything that's going on with the crazy family, the relationship between Rin and Maddie and Ben, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. You're not going to want to miss that. And also, you're not going to want to miss my spoiler-filled review of Captain Marvel. That's going to be part of the show this week as well. But you know, we always start off with comics. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Brian Ruckley, the writer of IDW's Highlander, The American Dream, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the long box, fire up the tablet, the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And I know I talked about how crazy things were at IDW Media Holdings last week, but it seems like it's a good time for a fresh start. So how about Transformers number one, the 2019 version, that is, from IDW. First, Brian Ruckley doing the writing, Angel Hernandez and Cashet Whitman on the art, Joanna LaFuente on the colors, Tom B. Long on the letters. And this really is... A fresh start at a time where it feels like even the Transformers comics kind of, it, it seemed like the story was had gone as far as it could go and, and it, it was a great ride. It was just time for a little bit of a fresh start. So they're going to go back. This is before the days of Optimus Prime, still when he was Orion Pax. It was before the war started between the Autobots and the Dece- Decepticons. It's actually back when Orion Pax and Megatron were still in the Cybertronian Senate. That's kind of where things are at now. And we also see Bumblebee. He's escorting a freshly forged Cybertronian named Rubble to the transmission area where, you know, you kind of find out, you know, you you get into Cybertron, you talk to people, you learn, you find out what you want to be. He's going to get a little bit of a lesson in engineering, too. So it's almost like taking your son to college in a certain way. As a matter of fact, they run into someone. Along the way, the Bumblebee knows, and that you as a Transformers fan will absolutely know. And it's almost like they're, they're teaching this young man, you know, about life and about his future. It's almost like a lesson that a mentor would give, you know, on the way to growing up. And I'll get to that here in just a second. But what we see also going on in the story is we get to see interactions between Orion Pax and Megatron. They're not exactly friends, but they're not trying to destroy one another either. And if you're a diehard Transformers fan, it's a little weird to see at first, but it is definitely a meeting. There's a lot of political intrigue right away in this story, and certainly there's seeds of division there. It's not like, you know, they're coming to blows or anything, but you certainly see that, that there are two sides there. And, you know, can they talk out their differences or not, I guess, is one of the main parts of what's going on in this story. But at the same time, you know, Pax tries to get through to him, tries to get through to Megatron about their issues. You could probably imagine how that goes, but I'm not here to spoil the book for you, so I won't tell you exactly how that goes. And Megatron does have a plan too, by the way. But it's, I mean, maybe you'd see it as nefarious. I could certainly see why why you would, but it's not as nefarious as other plans that Megatron has had. Let's put it that way. But the I, again, I can't stand enough that the, the seeds of division are there. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily planted yet. So that's, that's the best tease I can give you for how this book sort of went. And again, when you've got, you've also got Bumblebee and Rubble, and Rubble's energy is really infectious in this. I mean, it's really, I mean, just imagine the joy of seeing everything for the first time. And that's exactly what you're getting from Rubble. I mean, yeah, that can grow a little a little thin, a little old. But at the same time, it's just it brings an energy to this book and to the Transformers books in, in general. The, that youthful exuberance that maybe was missing a little bit in, in a story that's in stories that started to get really, really serious. I mean, it certainly had its light moments, but 
the levity that was brought by this character, by this young character, just really, really worked for me in this book. Now, something does happen when they reach their destination uh, where the issue ends that might mean that Rubble has to grow up a little bit faster than they would like him to. But but at the in the end, I think this was a nice way to kind of restart the Transformers franchise. It's not necessarily a reboot, I don't think. It just doesn't feel like a reboot. It almost feels like a restart. It's like, okay, let's go back to where we were and we'll start something fresh. And this feels like something that they can build on for quite a while, too. It's un- you know, unlike, you knew you had The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead and you knew that those things would cross paths at some point. It just doesn't feel like this book's going to catch up to anything that we recognize right away. This is something that could play out for quite a while, depending on how the story is told. As far as Angel Hernandez's art goes, I mean, if you loved Angel Hernandez's work in the Star Trek Green Lantern crossover from IDW and DC, this might just top it. I mean, it was. I mean, the detail work on 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 Orion Pax alone is really really incredible. Got to give a tip of the cap to Cashet Whitman on that as well. That, I mean, it's just, it's very visually appealing. You will not be disappointed at all. And I like where the story's going. I like that this is a different tone than we've seen from Transformers books recently, but not so much of a departure that as a Transformers fan, you're going, I don't recognize my favorite characters in, my, in the story that I love anymore. And it feels like we're going to get more Cybertron in this, a really deep dive into Cybertron, the city itself. So I really think that that's great, and I hope that that's where they're going. This is a pull for me. I'm glad I loved this. I really, really wanted to, and I was not disappointed. Speaking of not being disappointed, I've been loving what I've been seeing from the Batman Who Laughs from DC and Scott Snyder and company. So how about the Batman Who Laughs, The Grim Knight number 1 from DC? Scott Snyder joined by James Tinn the 4th on this one, Eduardo Risso on the art, Dave Stewart on the colors, Sal Cipriano on the letters, and the cover done by Jock, who has been doing the main art for the Batman Who Laughs series. Now, this kind of essentially tells you the story of why the Grim Knight is the way he is in a way. We actually get to see Batman slash Bruce Wayne's origin play out a bit differently in this book. And that's the biggest, it's not really a spoiler that, that, that that's the case. Because if you know the, the if you've been reading Dark Knight's Metal and you know that there's been these different versions of Batman. So they all kind of came through that origin differently. Now, that might be the most telling part of it, though, is that it plays out a bit differently. We get to see it play out and involve even more after that, but that initial point of where things start. It really plays into not knowing. It really plays into the whole, you know, you don't know how one small change is going to make a huge difference later on in life, right, when you look back. And this small moment was a catalyst. And when you see it, you'll go, I can't, I never thought about how that would have played out had it gone that way. When you see it, it's, it's, it's almost like a huh moment because you can obviously understand like, okay, well, what if this happened instead of that? When you're talking about what happened with Batman's origin and how things went the way that they did. I'm really tap dancing around this. I know. But to see this play out, this is a scenario I never even envisioned. And I don't know if that makes me a sucky Batman fan or not. But to see it play out and go, huh, never thought about that before. I was instantly locked in and interested. So the question that's asked throughout this story is, who made him? In the present day, meaning the Grim Knight, of course. In the present day, we see that the Grim Knight has a prisoner who he's, who's kind of pushing him for that very answer. You could probably guess who this prisoner is, but I'm not going to reveal that to you just in case. Now, the beauty part about this book and everything that leads up to that is that the answer's up for debate and it's up for interpretation. It seems obvious by the way things play out and certainly towards the conclusion of the book based on who's there, but it's really not that obvious, or at least I don't think it is. Now, there is a plan for the prisoner, but we only get a tease to us for now. The rest is going to continue in the Batman Who Laughs miniseries, which is going to be the next issues number four. We're going to see that play out a little bit more in that issue. But we get to see a lot of backstory for the Grim Knight and a lot of context that really, really sheds a new light on the character, at least I think. Now, I've been waiting for Eduardo Risso to do a Batman book since I met him back at San Diego Comic-Con 
in 2017. Bumped into him at a party. Cards on the table. I didn't recognize him. But we had a, such a long and great conversation about just the comic book industry in general. And, I've, I, and I realized how much of a fan of, of his work I was. And that's just the thing. You don't necessarily get to see, know what these artists look like. You know them more from their work than their actual faces. So when I actually realized who it was and just got to talk to him about his work so much, he is an amazingly interesting man, Eduardo Risso. And, and the work that he's done on this book is nothing short of astounding to me. I mean, he weaves each panel, each panel, to fit the mood of the scene that it's being depicted. So it's like there's multiple artists working on this book at once, but you realize it's Eduardo Risso that's doing all this work. The detail's so stunning throughout, too. It gives the book a nice balance. It's just so incredible how this thing plays out. And it made the story even that much more interesting for me, too. So... I can't say that this is a poll because I think this is kind of more of like a one-shot. But you're going to want to get this and add this to your Batman Who Laughs collection. It is an absolutely imperative issue for me. It's not one of those spinoffs that's going to be a one-off thing. It's like, ah, this isn't going to matter in the grand scheme of things. This is absolutely going to matter in the grand scheme of things. And if you want the book years later, that's going to be the origin story of the Grim Knight. Because the Batman Who Laughs is obviously a character that's taken off in DC. The Grim Knight could do the exact same thing in being the Batman who has no problem killing, who has no problem crossing that line, who has no problem using guns and things like that. This is a character that we could definitely see more from later on down the line. So the collector in you is going to want this issue, but the Batman fan in you is going to want this issue as well. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to go to This Week in Geek Tam, and you've been waiting for it. My spoiler-filled review of Captain Marvel is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Wynn Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to take flight with one of Marvel's most powerful heroes. That's right, it's my spoiler-filled review of Captain Marvel with Brie Larson and company. I can't stress spoiler-filled enough from here on out. Now, I know that you've maybe listened to the show in the past. Maybe this is your first time listening to the show. Maybe you're a little bit leery of having yet another white male opinion about the Captain Marvel movie. And I get it. With all the controversy that's been happening, all these goofy, you know, negative reviews just for the sake of being negative, something like that. You know, maybe this movie wasn't necessarily made for me, but I'm going to go ahead, give my perspective on it anyway. All I ask is that I think what any of us really ask is to just, you know, give me a chance. Might surprise you a little bit. I'm not going to bog you down with what the movie was about or anything like that. I'm just going to talk about some of the stuff that I liked, some of the stuff that stood out to me, if there was anything I didn't like, and I'll tell you why if that's the case. So let's just jump into it, shall we? And I really want to start with Brie Larson, Carol Danvers, Veers, whatever you want to call her, let's talk about her for a second. She was fiery. She was spunky. She was smart. She was fierce. She was all of the things that you want in a character when you have a strong female lead in a movie like this, especially in any kind of an action movie. I thought, you know, she was flawed at times. She was also determined, and the one thing that she was sick of was having a man tell her what she could and couldn't do. And to me, it's it's almost frustrating because it's like, how is it that this still happens? You know, I realize that this was set back in the 90s, okay? But still, it still happens. And it's frustrating for me that this even still has to be an issue, that this still happens, but it does. And this movie shines a spotlight on that without making that the absolute 100% focus of this movie. But I thought that this movie was actually summed up in one pretty big scene at the end. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to skip to the end a little bit in talking about this. We're talking about Jude Law's character of Yon Rog. And they're fighting at the end. Of course, we find out that he ends up being, you know, the one that lied to her all along and that the Kree were the aggressors all along, where if you're a Marvel Comics fan, you kind of already knew that. Anyway, right, not a whole lot of love for the Kree in Marvel Comics. And he says something to her like, you know, this is your chance to prove to me that you can beat me without your powers. 
show me. And she basically, you know, knocks him backwards with her powers and says something along the lines of, I don't have to prove anything to you. And that's the point here of this entire thing. All these, you know, phony reviews, comics gators, and anybody that's trying to take this movie down for, you know, what they consider good reasons. You know, it seems like a silly thing to do to me. You know, it seems like really a huge waste of time. But at the same time, this movie, Brie Larson, Marvel, the Captain Marvel character, doesn't have anything to prove to any of us, does it? It really doesn't. Now, you can judge this movie on its merit and decide whether it's good, bad, or not. But that is the point of this whole thing, right? This character really doesn't have anything to prove at this point other than... You know, this is her origin story into the Marvel Universe and to show fans that, hey, this is the character that has stood right beside Steve Rogers in some of the biggest battles in Marvel Comics, in the pages. And fans are just now getting to see what she can do on the screen. Not to mention, I mean, especially towards the end where she's just busting through everybody. And, you know, blowing through ships. I remember the scene with Darth Vader in Rogue One. Where he's just coming through and mowing everybody down, right? And I remember the scene where Wonder Woman in No Man's Land was just going through. Knocking bullets aside. And just making her path through that battlefield. It felt similar. Maybe not exactly the same. But it was a very similar moment in that... Here's this woman that's been told that she can't do it. Who's been told to control her emotions? That they actually are not going to help her in any kind of battle situation. All these things she's told that she shouldn't do. And here she is just cutting through everybody like a hot knife through butter. And it was incredible, man. It really, really was. And she didn't even, you know, normally this is one of those times you'd say, you know, she grew up in that moment. She didn't. She was always there. It was always right there. It was being suppressed. This entire movie, Veers, Carol Danvers, whatever you want to call her, has been suppressed. And then she's finally able to bust through and be exactly who she wants to be. And there are very very few times in this movie where she's even in, in any kind of danger at all. We see that with the scrolls earlier on when she's kind of hanging by her feet and they're ripping her memories to shreds, trying to figure out what's going on and where the Tesseract is. We didn't know it was the Tesseract at the time, but we find out that find that out later on. There was that time, and then maybe a few seconds in the final battle. Other than that, she's not really in any danger at any point in this movie, if you think about it. And that should tell you exactly how powerful she is. Now, let me address here for a second the criticism, one of the big criticisms from the trailer. And that was, well, she doesn't smile. She's not smiling. We never see her smiling. First of all, they take care of that in the movie because she's told that showing any kind of emotion is a threat to her. It gives the enemy an advantage. So she's told not to show any emotion at all, whether it be anger, happiness, anything, nothing. Even when she's joking around, she gets told to knock it off. And she's funny plenty in this movie too, by the way. In a, in a sassy kind of way, which I loved. And I think Brie Larson plays very, very well. And yeah, she smiles in this movie, but you know what? Again, what difference does it make? How many times have you seen Nick Fury smile in past Marvel movies? He smiles a, a lot in this one. This is a different side of Nick Fury throughout the entire movie. And it's fun. Plus, and as a matter of fact, him going crazy over this cat, or whatever you wanted to call what the cat ended up being, It was amazing. I loved it. Thought it was hilarious. And I loved seeing this different side of Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. It was just, it was so much fun to me. And I also want to talk about the relationship between Carol Danvers and her bestie, Maria Rambo. And I got to tell you, Lashana Lynch did a fantastic job in the short amount of time that she was given because she also had an empowering moment. These were women that were held down. that weren't allowed to fly in combat. And all of a sudden, you see how good they would have been had they been allowed to do so. Especially 
with Maria Rambo. As a matter of fact, she kind of gets offered a little bit of a gig with S.H.I.E.L.D. as a pilot at the end of this whole thing. So just seeing their relationship together, though. This is somebody who's lost her best friend, Maria Rambo. Thought she'd been dead for six years. And she comes back. And then on the flip side of that, you've got Carol Danvers, Veers, whatever you want to call her, who has no idea who she is, has lost now this six years of her life that she had no idea about in even previous to that, or who any of the people are that are coming to her in these visions, especially when you're talking about the supreme intelligence that all these Cree visit to kind of tell them that they're worthy of doing something. That's the thing. Throughout this entire movie, you've got Carol Danvers telling, being told that she has to be told she's worthy of something instead of just realizing that she is. And that's another thing that kind of gets pushed to the forefront, isn't it? It's that she realized on her own that she could make that determination for herself. And that is a very empowering thing in this movie, I think. And I hope that that's something that comes across. You don't need somebody to tell you when you're ready to do something. You can decide when you think you're ready to do something and take that next step and just fight like hell to get it. You may or may not make it there, but you can make that decision on your own. And I think that that was a really, really cool part of this movie. I hope I'm not the only one that really picked up on that. But just their chemistry together as friends, it was just, it's very sisterly. And I really, really loved it. And, you know, I definitely felt that emotion between the two of them when they reconnected. And then when she decides to take off and help the scrolls find their new home, that was another really emotional part of the movie for me. I just got their connection instantly like that. It was so, so apparent to me. And that's just a great job by the two of them who had great, great chemistry from the get-go. I actually thought that Annette Benning did a pretty good job as well, playing the dual role of the Supreme Intelligence and also the doctor that they were trying to help bring this light speed technology to get the Skrulls the hell out of Dodge before the Kree destroyed them. Because Annette Benning plays a Kree that realizes that she's on the wrong side of this war. And that's why the Kree end up coming after her in the first place. So I thought that she did a pretty good job playing that dual role because the Supreme Intelligence is kind of who you're supposed to see when you're going in there to get your marching orders. That's who you, who's supposed to tell you what, you're, what you are and aren't ready for. And it's supposed to be somebody you admire, but, you know, Veers didn't know why she admired this woman in the first place. So I thought she did a really good job as well. Another thing that I thought maybe goes unnoticed in this, and, you know, it seemed like in the trailers they were going to push the whole you know, angle of, oh, it's set in the 90s. Oh, get ready for all this nostalgia. And there wasn't. There was some. There was a little bit. But there wasn't a lot there. The music kind of did that a lot. We got to hear a lot of 90s tunes. You know, especially when you hear No Doubt and Gwen Stefani, I'm Just a Girl. When Carol Danvers is sitting there dropping bodies on that research ship. I'm not, not killing them, but, you know, just... Just kicking some serious ass is what I mean to say. And, and she's just into that set to that tune. I thought that that was really cool. But this is a movie that could have easily just went all in on the nostalgia, right? Wouldn't have made sense necessarily to do that. It wasn't forced. It was there at times when it made sense or it needed to be. Like the whole thing of her going to the radio shack to rig up the payphone. So she could phone home and tell everybody that she was okay on the on the Cree ship and what was going on. That was funny. That was cool. That made sense. But this was not a movie that crammed nostalgia in your face to try and distract you from the fact that there was no good story because there was a good story. And instead of veering off on the nostalgia track, they stayed on course, literally, with this origin story that at times didn't even feel like one. And that's a tough thing to do. Black Panther did the same thing very, very well. Whereas you had an origin story for T'Challa, right? But it didn't feel like an origin story. And it wasn't because we had already seen him in a previous Marvel movie. It's because that story was told so, so well and so linear and didn't veer off of that path. And that's exactly what Captain Marvel does as well. Also, you know, giving... Fans, you know, little bits and pieces. I thought the Stan Lee cameo reading Mall Rats on the train was really great. By the way, that Marvel Studios opening tribute to Stan Lee, loved that. I hope they do that from now on, actually. I know that it, maybe it'll get old after a little bit. I don't think it will. I would do that from now on and thank Stan Lee from now until forever, as long as Marvel Studios exists. 
But that's just my opinion. So, and the other thing is, is that Marvel gets criticized a lot. And I've certainly criticized Marvel movies a lot for having a villain problem. And I thought that maybe this time you'd have a villain problem. Yeah, the Skrulls are, are, you know, they would have been considered decent. And then you find out the Kree are the real villains. And certainly they're, they're, they're a decent pick for a villain as well, being, you know, such an extreme fighting force. But you've got, you've got Talos, who's played by Ben Mendelsohn. And Ben Mendelsohn is your classic, you know, douchebag villain guy, right? He's just got that cocky air about him that you just, you, you want to punch him in the face as a villain, and that's a role he plays really, really well. But Ben Mendelsohn got to show a different side of himself when, you, when we find out that the Skrulls aren't the aggressors, and they're the ones that are just trying to get home. He really played that emotional family man vibe really, really well as an alien and was talking about how they were, they were the refugees, and they were the ones that were overrun and taken over by the Korean when they wouldn't surrender. They were slaughtered, and we get to feel that emotion from him. So instead of us feeling the emotion of wanting to punch him in the face, you wanted to give him a, a hug, and that's an emotion I wasn't prepared to have when talking about Ben Mendelsohn. So got to give him really a lot of credit there as well. And the way you really flipped the script in this movie, especially if you didn't really know how bad the Kree were really were, and you were really taken in by the fact that maybe they were the good guys. I never really felt that way watching the movie because I know the I know a little bit more about the history of the Korean Marvel comics. So I kind of knew where things were going to go there. But, or at least I assumed I knew where they were going to go there. And then seeing him be a part of the team towards the end there, I thought was really, really interesting. And the play between him and Fury, I thought was really, really fun as well. So all in all, I don't think it had a villain problem because it didn't, the focus wasn't on the villain. The focus was on the hero. Very, very much so. And there are plenty of Marvel movies that have had villain problems. But this was a Carol Danvers movie. This was a Captain Marvel movie, period. And they were not going to let anything, the villain, anything take away from that. They were not going to bog us down with nostalgia. They weren't going to veer off on a path of the story that didn't need to be veered off on. This was about Carol Danvers, first and foremost. And you know what? It just plain worked. I don't want to talk about, you know, how how great was the acting? Oh, the CG. If you don't like movies with CG, then stop seeing movies with CG. I'm tired of hearing the complaints about good CG, bad CG. I actually thought it was fine. I thought it was pretty good myself. I thought the effects were just fine. But I, I see those complaints all the time. Oh, the CG was so bad. If you don't like CG movies, then stop seeing movies where you know there's going to be a, a lot of CG. Just stop it. Or, you know, just wait and close your eyes during the whole CG parts. I don't know. But everything just seemed to work so much better than I thought it was going to. And no complaints for me from Brie Larson. I thought she she played the tough soldier when she needed to. She played the, the cocky and kind of feisty role when she needed to. She was funny when she needed to be or when she wanted to be. That's exactly it. She was what she wanted to be in each moment, and there were plenty of uplifting and inspirational moments in this movie as well. So if I was to give Captain Marvel a rating, I enjoyed it from start to finish. Was it a perfect movie from start to finish? No, but I didn't think it was too long. At two hours and three minutes, I thought it was just right. I thought the mid credit scene actually mattered for the first time in a long time when we get to see her show up with Steve Rogers and with Black Widow, and we get to see her kind of answer that beacon that we saw in the movie, in the Captain Marvel movie from Nick Fury. So that made sense. So I'm going to go ahead and give this, I can't give this a perfect score because I didn't think it was a perfect movie, but it did really, really well. So I'm going to do nine punches to the face of an old lady that's not really an old lady who ends up drop kicking you out of 10. In case you didn't follow that, that is a 9 out of 10 rating. And that's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Captain Marvel movie. Up next, how about this? We've still got nerd news to get to. We'll do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Even with the great Facebook crash of 2019, there is still plenty to talk about. It's time for nerd news. And to me, the biggest story of the week, in this shortened week, by the way, since the show's coming out a day earlier, so going to do some nerd news from before then. Marvel Studios is actually planning 
a what if series for Disney Plus. This is according to Slash Film, who says they've confirmed this with three different sources now, yet to be confirmed confirmed as I'm recording this by anybody at Disney or Marvel or anything like that. So it's going to be an animated anthology series. And before you roll your eyes, we've come a long way in animation. Animation is legit. It's beautiful. It can be done so many ways and done so well in so many ways. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. So if you're a snob who doesn't like animation, then that's your problem. Now, Kevin Feige is going to be overseeing this. One of the stories, apparently, is going to be what if Loki found the Hammer of Thor. Of course, that was Volume 1, Number 47, if you're a fan of the What If comics. Now, each episode is going to be something different, so there's going to be no continuations here. Now, are there going to be allowances for certain stories? Probably. There's no episode length on these or anything like that, so there could be some liberties taken with certain stories, I would think, anyway. Some may be longer than others. Now, there's no word on if the actors from the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are going to reprise their roles in these what-if stories. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to involve somebody from one of those movies either. As a matter of fact, think about this. How about the what if the X-Men died on their first mission? Wouldn't that be a nice way to kind of soft launch the X-Men into Marvel Studios? Notice how I didn't say the MCU. Marvel Studios. It just seems like that could be one way to do it. I'm sure that it'll probably get done before then, but if not, I mean, here's a way to be like, oh, by the way, here's the X-Men. If you're Marvel Studios. The one I think I'm looking forward to seeing the most, what if Spider-Man rescued Gwen Stacy? I think that that's one that would be really, really popular to see regardless. But, I mean, to me, you could do this maybe as a 60-minute. I'd almost like to see this go 90 minutes depending on the story, though. Make it an animated movie instead of, I mean, you call it a series. I guess you could probably do this in an hour. But isn't Disney Plus turning into this giant playground that every kid wants to play on, but you have to have that access code first. You know, you have to to pay your admission. It's like when I take my son to the bounce house. You know, you can look at all the bouncy castles from the outside in the window, and it looks nice, but you got to pay to get in before you can go jump up and bounce and and have a great time. So Disney Plus is that thing. You can look at all these things that are coming to it, but you're going to have to pay that monthly admission fee, which seems like it's going to be well worth the price of it, by the way. If we keep getting stuff like this, I'm all about that. I was a huge fan of the Marvel What Ifs, and I'm so excited to see them possibly being brought to life, some of them anyway, in any form, and especially in animation. I think that's a really smart way to go. Things are changing once again in the Arrowverse, or Flareoverse, or whatever we're going to be calling it after Arrow ends in Season 8. The Flash is going to be getting a new showrunner for next season, Season 6, According to The Hollywood Reporter now, Todd Helbing's going to be stepping down to focus on development in general at Warner Brothers Television. Now, Eric Wallace is going to be taking over as showrunner in this upcoming season. Now, he was co-EP since season four, so it's not like he hasn't been around the show. And that was right around the time that Todd Helbing took over as showrunner as well. Keep that in mind. Now, this marks another promotion from within. Because remember, remember Beth Schwartz, before taking over as showrunner for Arrow, was with the show since season one. Started, worked her way up, and eventually became showrunner. So they clearly, Greg Berlanti and the crew, like to promote from within. And there's so much talent throughout this entire group that you almost can't blame them from promoting with, from within, right? And you get somebody that's familiar with the cast, familiar with the show, familiar, familiar with how things operate. Because, you know, The Flash... The most popular Arrowverse show right now, according to certain statistics here and there, I saw something on Screen Rant recently that said that. And, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Things have been great for The Flash. This season's gone really well, too. So, here's my only thing, though, and maybe this is just me being paranoid. Does this signal that the end might be near for The Flash as well, or is it just a coincidence? Because, you know, it seems like Beth Schwartz gets the job, and then... She's, she works on season seven, and now season eight is going to be a shortened season, and that's going to be it. I really don't think that's going to be the case here, but the paranoid person in me is going, wait a second, the last time you changed the showrunner, you ended the show, and this is season six, and eh, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But I mean, if it did, I mean, a lot of this is going to depend on the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, but I think The Flash is one of those shows that 
even without Barry, could continue on pretty well. I don't want Grant Gustin going anywhere. I just put that out there right now. But without Barry, there are ways to make the show work as the Flash as well. So it wouldn't be totally out of the realm of possibility to see this go on. Now, if you're wondering about Wallace's experience, Wallace also worked on Team Wolf and Eureka, so there's plenty of chops there. I certainly think that Eric Wallace could do a fantastic job on the show, especially since, I mean, since season four. Season four was pretty dark, and I guess you could understand that given given the background here, but I like the way things have been going, even in last season and in this, especially this season of The Flash. So here's the deal. I mean... It seems like this show has found its groove again. It was, season 3 was super dark. You had plenty of dark moments last season as well. This season, definitely lightening things up a bit. And a, a lot of it depends on your villain too, right? So I'll be interested more in who the villain is going to be for season 6 than anything else. But I wish Eric Wallace the best. I know that he's going to do a great job. Speaking of DC television, Deadline gives us a report that the deadliest assassin, debatably, in the DC Universe, is going to be coming to Titan Season 2. You kind of hoped that they would do it eventually, and they are. Deathstroke is going to be a part of Titans Season 2, and Isai Morales is going to be playing Deathstroke. You might remember Isai Morales from NYPD Blue. He's most recently on, on Mars and Ozark there on Netflix. Now, here's the deal. Here's the character description, or at least a part of it anyway that was put out with this story. Now, it talks about how his family knows him as a husband and a father, but the world fears him as the infamous Deathstroke, whose services are up for the highest bidder. So we are going with the whole Slade's family doesn't know what's going on here type of thing. So it's almost like they're trying to go with the more grounded, real-world approach that we've sort of seen from the DC Universe already a little bit. So I can understand why they go that route. Now, first of all, Isai Morales, fantastic actor. I've loved his work and other stuff that he's been in as well. Loved him on Jericho. Remember that show, Jericho, that was saved by the Peanuts and CBS and all that stuff? If not, Google it. It was a fun little story. But anyway, Isai Morales has got great chops. He's going to do a fantastic job as Deathstroke. He's just got that air about him. He's going to know how to handle this character. But I know exactly what you're thinking in some of the comments I saw on social media, why not cast Manu Bennett? Well, for quite a few reasons, actually. The first being, I mean, it's too much pressure to connect this whole thing to the Arrowverse, which is probably the same reason we'll never see Constantine on Doom Patrol unless we see some sort of a, you know, agreement that these whole worlds are connected that we haven't, we haven't really given been given that diehard connection yet. So... I'm not going to say whether they are or there aren't or or in the movies either. I'm not going to go there at all. What I will say is that it would come with too many preconceived notions and it would come with certain expectations of how things should be executed and who the character should be and all these. It's just not worth it. I mean, if you're going to do this, go ahead and recast. Another interesting little tidbit, though, is that now that the focus for the movies has shifted more to solo stuff, is this now a signal to us that we won't see Deathstroke in any movies anytime soon because they're going to be doing this? I know it's just probably maybe one season of Titans, although Deathstroke seems like that kind of villain, if you're going to bring him in on Titans, that you could use for a while, right? So I don't necessarily think this is going to be a one season and we're done thing here with Deathstroke, but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what Isai Morales can bring to the character because I'm a big fan of his. I mean, if you haven't seen him in anything yet, do yourself a favor. Go on Netflix or wherever you have to go to find some of his work. I think you'll agree that he's definitely going to be a good man for the job. Finally, a big announcement that came right before Emerald City Comic Con. Hopefully you're enjoying that this weekend. It's up there in Seattle. How about Black Hammer and Justice League giving us a comic book crossover? I never saw this coming, and it's such a great idea. Now, Dark Horse and DC are partnering up. For this five-issue limited series, first issue going to drop on July the 10th. Yes, of course, Jeff Lemire is going to be writing this alongside with Michael Walsh. You might remember Walsh's work in Spider-Man and Star Wars. And he's going to be the artist on this book. Now, the premise of this, basically, is that a strange man arrives simultaneously on the Black Hammer farm and in Metropolis. Now, an attack from Starro... It looks like it's going to be the thing that actually 
warps these worlds together. Now, if you're not familiar with Black Hammer, basically the whole the, the premise is that 10 years ago, Black Hammer and six other superheroes had saved Spiral City from an anti-god. In the process, though, they ended up being trapped on this farm in Rockwood, and it's like kind of like the Twilight Zone thing going on. It's, it's very interesting. It's been very well-received. Fans love it. Critics love it. It's a good book, and this just makes so much sense to cross these two over. And Jeff Lemire, of course, no stranger to DC either, right? Written so many great DC comics books. He actually told IGN, too, because some fans have been complaining about, oh, really? We're going to do this with Black Hammer? And Jeff Lemire said, no, no, no. This isn't just one of those, you know, crossovers that we're doing just to get noticed. No, this book's going to have an impression and future implications on the Black Hammer storylines. That's what he told IGN. And honestly, I mean... Jeff Lemire's not a cash grab guy. I've had him on the show before. He's very, very serious about his stories. He has a deep love for the characters that he creates. He doesn't just do things just to do them, okay? I mean, this is one of those things where if this is being done, he has a plan, and this is being done for a reason. Plus, you get to see some very unique character crossovers and I'm just wondering how any of these characters are going to get along. Like, any of them. I don't see any pairings where I go, yeah, I can see those two getting along really well. I don't see it. If anything, and I can't wait to see Batman's reaction to this crew. I really, really can't. And them to him, too, by the way. Maybe a couple of F-bombs are going to be dropped in Batman's direction. It wouldn't be the first time. I just think this is going to be a really cool series, a cool crossover. And I can't wait to find out more. There's so many cool variant covers that were released as well. You can actually go to downandnerdypodcast.com to find the full story and read up on it if you haven't had a chance to do that already. But I got to tell you, this is something I'm really looking forward to. And it's nice to see Dark Horse and DC playing nice on this one. I hope this is more of many to come. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about Siren Season 2. That's why the show is being released a day early, right? Because the spring finale is tonight. Alex Rowe will talk to us next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is William Powell from Siren on Freeform, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's hard to believe it's already the spring finale of Siren from Freeform. going to be happening on Thursday, March the 14th at 8 p.m. And who better to talk about it than Ben himself? It's Alex Rowe. Alex, what's up, buddy? What's up? How are you doing? Doing really well, man. It's been a while. I mean, last time we chatted, it was July. It was Comic-Con. And we, when we talked then, you said that kind of Ben would be dealing with the side effects of the Siren Song that were going to be kind of like an addiction. And boy, have we really kind of seen that play out throughout the season. So what was it like going through that? And what was it like seeing those scenes again all these months later when the show aired? It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was def- it was definitely interesting. There was such a level of ambiguity to season one as far as what effect it's kind of, it's having on Ben. But I think that like, yeah, it's, it, it warped his, his morals and his, uh, and his intentions and his desires and all kind of stuff in, in, this, in this interesting way. That is, uh, is definitely, yeah, it's, it's very similar to an addiction, you know, like I've got, I've got buddies of mine who suffer from addiction. and it, it 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 definitely warps things, you know, because this this thing becomes the most important thing in your like in your life, and it 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 changes your relationships, it changes the way that you that you see the world, you know, and I think that's what Ben is dealing with and struggling with. So yeah, it was very it was definitely interesting to to delve into that, especially because it's it's the sci-fi realm of addiction. It's not like a substance necessarily. It's like it's an it's an addiction to this thing that we just that we're trying to understand. And right. we see that other people experience different uh, have different responses to it. We've seen in this last episode that Chris is really Chris is really kind of going off the wall. We saw that Decker committed suicide because he couldn't hear Donna's song again mm-hmm. so the different effects that hasn't the, the the potential danger for Ben I think is always looming and think that uh that ultimately he has to compartmentalize and deal with what's in front of him and deal with the fact that these mermaids need need, need a safe place to 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 go and these mermaids need to try and get need to get back in the water he needs to like the oil company his his family this 
this relationship with the the, the person that he's seemingly addicted to, that he's in love with, his 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 girlfriend, who his his human his human love all gets yeah, it gets very complicated, and he uh, he's in, he's able to kind of rise above it in some way to to get the stuff done that he needs to get done but it's it's always there definitely let's talk about that non-traditional relationship for a second because you've got maddie you've got rin and and you've got ben and you know any relationship alex is going to have its challenges but what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for the three of them as they move forward here i think it's uh i think yeah you've got so like ben falls up with one with a mermaid and and he's also struggling with the fact that he's in love with his human partner, you know, while being drawn to a member of this other species. And it could be incredibly complicated. Like I I, I know people who are in uh, polyamorous re- relationships, and they're incredibly complicated and take a lot of kind of negotiation and and and, uh, and amazing communication. But what's amazing about this relationship is b- between the three of them is that. It is their place of solace, you know. It's their like place of refuge among all of this crazy stuff that's going on. So, what could be such an incredibly complicated relationship because because they don't really have the time to delve into the complications of it. They're already dealing with so much other stuff. It actually becomes this like yeah, this this beautiful refuge as we see in episode four when Maddie is kind of like when her, her mother's relapsed mm-hmm. we see maddie kind of we, we we see maddie come home and she's in tears and ben and rin are her refuge and i think we'll see that see that more and more in the in in the future and like it's quite a, a beautiful thing now we know that rin's kind of agreed to work with the military we saw that in the last episode with nicole and you know agrees to do these experiments to save ben now could that actually cause more tension between Ben and the other mermaids, perhaps, you know, maybe blaming him for Rin making this decision? It, it could do, you know. I think uh, there's this, yeah, there's this, this looming thing of, like, the, of the the military among us, you know. And uh, and I, it seems like Xander's starting to piece things together a little bit. But, yeah, I I, I think that this, the same way do anything for to to. Rin, I think Rin has has that same drive, and I think uh, yeah, the, like we've seen with Katrina, and we've seen with her relationship with Rin, the closer that Rin gets to to humans, the kind of the weaker she is perceived by uh, by Katrina. So yeah, definitely could definitely could cause between uh, between Ben and the mermaids, but I, you'd hope that the mermaids are seeing that Ben's kind of really putting himself out there to right, help right. them. So hopefully they can, uh, hopefully they can let that slide, you know? Absolutely. Now, Ben's also got a very complicated and shaky relationship with his parents at this point. I think that's kind of an understatement now. Even though his dad was kind of there for him, we saw him when he was in jail, he tried to you know, help him out with the lawyer and everything. Do you feel like that that's a relationship that can ever truly be repaired given everything that's happened up to this point? Oh, how could he, you know? Could they... How could they get into bed with the oil company? I think, yeah, like Ben is really centered and grounded. I think. I think that he's like he makes a makes a point as a marine biologist to defend creatures that can't defend themselves. You know, to do the right thing. He's a man who like who hates hypocrisy and a man who's like not motivated by status. These are things that I really love about him, but. He and that really puts him at odds with his with his family, you know, because they value completely different things for him. But this, this like direct thing that Ben seen whales washed up on the, the beach, like his dad's been involved in in like mass fishing and all this kind of stuff, and disagrees with them and and kind of wants them to be a little more sustainable with the way that they do their business. But to have these these whales wash up. And have like the, the the creature, the woman, the mermaid that he loves, to have her like getting blasted by the sonic cannon, to get have her colony being blasted by the sonic cannon, and have like being able to physically see the effects and talk and like talk with like one of these creatures that are affected by what his parents are, are, are partly responsible for supporting. 
I think that it's kind of a final straw for Ben. And I and I was thinking, like, like playing playing Ben and trying to get into the bones of what it all is. I think that what it does is it strengthens his resolve when making decisions on what to do to protect those that he loves. You know, and I think that he's kind of got a new family now in some. And I think that the the, the more they mess up the more that it's going to just it's the more that it's going to strengthen Ben's resolve with those that he that he loves Absolutely. Now, before I let you go, Alex, we kind of saw that Ben and Maddie were really ready to do whatever it takes, even maybe even working with an eco-terrorist group or something at some point to stop this Sonic Cannon and stop the oil, oil company. But in the teaser for the spring finale, though, it kind of looks like there might be a bit of a new approach. So without spoiling anything, do we have a few surprises in store for this spring finale coming up? This spring finale is definitely explosive. There is uh, Ben, Maddie... Uh, and Rin to really willing to do anything to protect these to protect these mermaids. Time is of the essence. They at the moment can't go back in the water. At the moment they might be hunted by the military. Rin potentially is, is working with the military too. So their time is really of the essence to get these guys back into the water. Like the the skin can't take it anymore. These aren't transforming properly. Um, so I can say is that Ben, Maddie, Rin, everyone involved who wants to uh, protect these mermaids is everyone's going to put themselves in a very, very dangerous position in order to save the mermaids. And uh, the outcome could be really, really terrible. And you'll have to tune in to find out. Uh, we can't wait to find out what that outcome is going to be in the Sirens Spring Finale, which you can watch on Freeform Thursday, March the 14th at 8 o'clock Eastern. Make sure you're watching on the free f- after that as well on the Freeform website. Catch up anytime at freeform.com or on Hulu as well. It's Alex Rowe. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Doesn't it feel, based on that, that things are going to be next level insane and crazy? For the Siren Season 2 Spring Finale. It's going to be happening at 8 o'clock Eastern on Freeform. Can't wait to see exactly what's going to be happening with the whole oil rig situation. You Make sure you're also watching it again on Hulu and Freeform website. You're going to want to see this multiple times, I have a feeling, because it is going to be insane. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Alex Rowe and the folks at Freeform for joining me this week. Don't forget to get more shows on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. Find the whole back catalog there. You can also follow us on social media, at downandnerdy757 on Instagram and and Twitter, and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. want to let you know we're going to have a brand new sponsor, for next week's show, actually, can't wait to tell you more about that, and it's going to be an exciting week next week for sure. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.